Gospel, we are in John chapter 12. And as I noted last uh, Sunday, this is the turning point in John's Gospel. In every other Gospel, the hinge on which the Gospel turns is Peter's great confession of faith in Caesarea Philippi. But in the fourth Gospel, in John's Gospel, the hinge is everything that happens with Jesus raising Lazarus and then in that upper room, in that, in that house, in Simon the leper's house with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then John has given us in a very focused way the triumphal entry and the mixture of faith and unbelief. And I just want to note this morning as we come to look at John chapter 12, verses 33 to the end of the chapter, that this is sort of the conclusion of the first half of John's Gospel. Remember, we said at the very outset, John's Gospel can be divided into the book of signs and the book of glory. The book of signs are those seven miracles. The book of glory is everything from the upper room to the resurrection and ascension. And this is really the closing of the first half of John's Gospel. It's the conclusion. And what John is going to do in a very focused way, and I'll just tell you this by, by way of preface, he is going to focus in a very focused way on the free offer of the gospel, and he's going to explain why so many do not believe the gospel. And um, if I can say this this morning, this is a hard portion of scripture. You know, I was telling our elders this morning, a lot of people hate uh, Romans chapter 9. Um, I was converted because of Romans 9. I, I was concerned that God had made me a vessel of wrath, and so I fled to Jesus. That's what it's supposed to do in the elect. Uh, many people have turned away from the faith because of Paul's teaching in Romans 9. I had a man a number of years ago in a men's group say to me, I don't care what Paul says. I want to hear what Jesus says. Well, you're going to hear what Jesus says this morning. And it is harder than what Paul says in Romans 9 because John's going to tell us that Christ is the sovereign Jehovah who, because of the impenitence of men's heart, hardens them in unbelief as a judgment. That's not easy, but if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to trust in him, we have to come to terms with the fact that this is the only Jesus. This is the Savior who John saw seated on the throne in Isaiah's vision. And so we're looking this morning at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 33 now, um, Jesus has just said that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and if he is, that if I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And now we read, the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid, hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And before every unbeliever wipes his brow and says, oh, that's good, Jesus didn't come to judge. Notice verse 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me, he himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the challenging things about Christianity is that those of us who know it's true, and as we look in the gospel records and we see the many miracles that Jesus did, and we hear the heavenly doctrine that he brought, and we see everything that the prophets said in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament in his death and resurrection, wonder how in the world could everyone else not believe that this is true. I remember that impulse as a new Christian. I had such a burning desire in my heart because God had opened my eyes to see the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ that I wondered, how could everyone not believe? This morning I woke up and um, I went online briefly and I noticed that yet another well-known Christian musician has denounced the faith and has made a 32-minute video explaining to everyone why he is no longer a Christian. And among the explanations that he gives are that he wrestled with the difficult things in Scripture but never came to a place where he really felt settled about it and that he really felt settled when he finally just said, you know what, I don't believe that anymore. That would be the wrong response to the difficult things in Scripture. Um, The right response is to say, you know, I don't understand everything in God's word, but I take God at his word. I am a sinner, and I need a savior, and that's why I'm going to continue to trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, we have a passage before us that's going to set out um, the very essence of unbelief. These are people who had seen many of Jesus's miracles. They had heard much of his teaching. They know that he has raised Lazarus, and still they don't believe. And you'll notice there in verse 34, Jesus has finally said to them as he is unpacking this, that he came to be lifted up, and that he, if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And notice their response is, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? He is in front of them. And they do not see him, and they cannot believe in him. And John is going to answer the question for us this morning, why doesn't everyone believe if Jesus is who he says he is? Why doesn't everyone believe if Jesus is 
who he said he was. Um, this is the section, it's Jesus' last sermon to the unbelieving na- people in, in the Jewish nation. It's very interesting. This is the last time he is going to preach anything to unbelievers around him. And from this point on, he's going to take his disciples up into the upper room. He's going to teach them those precious truths in John 13 through 17. He's going to pray them back to the Father. He's going to go to the garden. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be tried. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be mocked and spit upon. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be laid in the tomb. He's going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to ascend to his Father. But this is the last time, and that makes this significant because just factor this with me. Jesus knows that this is his hour. And if Jesus knows this is his hour, what he says right here ought to carry supreme weight when we realize this is the last time he's going to preach to the unbelievers in the nation of Israel who had gathered around him. Well, I want us to consider two things as we consider John 12, 33 through 50. First, I want us to consider Christ's final offer of the gospel. And then secondly, I want us to consider Christ's sovereignty over the hearts of men, Christ's final offer of the gospel, and Christ's sovereignty over the hearts of men. We'll notice there, no sooner do the people express the fact that they don't know who he is, and they can't understand what he's saying, and they are spiritually blind that Jesus now says this in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Now, There are several ways that we can understand what Jesus is saying. On one hand, Jesus is simply telling them, I am only going to be with you in the flesh for a little while longer. Believe while I'm here. And that would be true. He knows that he's going to the cross. He's prophesied that he's going to the cross. He's said that he is going to be lifted up for sinners. He he has made his death the very centerpiece of everything that he came to do. And, and, He knows that he's going to the Father, as he says in many other places in John's Gospel, and yet he now says to the people, a little while longer, and you have the light. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Now there is a secondary sense in which what Jesus says has impact for us, and he is saying it to us this morning. He is saying, essentially, there is only so much time for Gospel proclamation. He is saying there are only so many days, there is only so many opportunities. We will only sit under so many sermons, and then the light will no longer be offered to us. Um, I want this to be as weighty in my soul as I want it to be in yours this morning. Um, Jesus tells that parable where he says after... The, the guests are invited and are gathered in. The door is shut. I think that's an allusion to what God did when he shut the door in the ark. And there's no more time. There's no more sermons. There's no more offering of Christ. Um, a little while longer, Jesus says, the light is with you. Remember, John tells us he is the light. In the very opening chapter, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Right? Whoever walks in darkness... Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here, John is picking back up on that, and Jesus is saying, there's a little while longer. There, there is time for men and women to believe in the light. 
Now, what's interesting about Jesus' final sermon here, especially in verses 35 and 36, is that it is a sermon of promise and warning. It's very interesting. The promise is, if you will walk in the light, if you will come to the light, if you will believe in the light, you will no longer walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. That's, that's a glorious promise. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, he'll, walk, he'll come to the light. He will no longer walk in darkness. He will have the light of life. Um, and it's a free offer. You know, what's glorious about this is Jesus is not saying, hey, shape up, do more, try better. There are well-meaning people, even in Reformed churches, who will lay on you such burdens that it makes it sound like if you do enough, Christ will accept you. That is foreign to the Bible. John has written this book so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And And Jesus in this last sermon says, look, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Come to the light. Believe in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Now, why is there a warning? Because as John has pointed out, not everyone believes. In fact, most do not believe. Most people that hear the gospel will never believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, It's a frightening thought. I've thought often over the past couple weeks of the severity of what Jesus said, that many will strive to enter and will not be able. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in thereby. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And, and why, do men, why do men not come to the light when it is freely offered? When everything Christ is going to do at the cross, he is saying, I'll give you the light of my redemption. I'll give you the light of my grace. I'll give you the light of freedom of sins. I'll give you the light of reconciliation with God. And yet men reject it. Why? Because Jesus says they love darkness. Why will men and women and boys and girls not come to Jesus? Because they love their sin. And they will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. There is one reason and only one reason why people will not come to Christ. It's because they love their sin more than they see their need for a savior. Now, let me say this this morning. I don't want you to leave here thinking, yeah, you know, I know this guy is all strung out on drugs, and that's true about him. In fact, Jesus is talking to very religious people whose darkness is very self-righteous. It's very hidden under their, their chest, inside their hearts, in their minds. It's not displayed as, as grandiosely as people that go and live in the gutters. Darkness dwells in every one of our hearts by nature. My heart and your heart. Listen to this. I thought this was interesting. J.C. Ryle, who I've been quoting through this whole series, says, We only half believe the heart's deceitfulness. We only half believe the heart's deceitfulness. Even when Christ wrought miracles and preached sermons, there were numbers of his hearers who remained utterly unmoved. What right do we have to wonder if the hearers of our sermons today in countless instances remain unbelieving? If the hearers of Christ did not believe, think about this, if those who heard him in the flesh did not believe, how much more should we expect to find unbelief among hearers of his ministers? Let the truth be spoken and confessed. Man's obstinate unbelief is one among many indirect proofs that the Bible is true. The clearest prophecy in Isaiah begins with the solemn question, who has believed our report? I want you to look down there at verse 38. 
when John is explaining, when he's explaining the unbelief, he quotes Isaiah 53.1. And that's important because that's the great chapter about the suffering Savior. It's the chapter in which we find those words, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment. Who can declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no sin, nor was deceit in his mouth. The greatest words in the Old Testament. And the opening verses, Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed our report? And the answer is obviously not many. Not many. Isn't that fascinating? The greatest, most glorious, clearest, sweetest word in the Old Testament. And Isaiah opens that proclamation with, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, Now, there is a sense in which Jesus is also speaking these words because he is trying to arm his disciples against the scandal of the cross. You know, we need this in a day of societal unbelief because as this country goes more and more and more and more and more anti-Christian, we need this truth to anchor our souls. I can't prove this, but every time I hear some quote-unquote public Christian deconstructing, denouncing the faith, old theologians called it apostasy, every time I hear that, I think... They caved into the pressure of everything around them, and they embraced their sin, and, and, but they caved in. They caved into the pressure. You see, Jesus is arming his disciples. We need this. It doesn't help anybody to have this glib, chipper, emotionally driven. I'm not going to say shamarmi again. I said it already, but that kind of emotional, um, evangelical, wishy-washy, kind of presentation of Christianity. Like, we need this Christianity. We need the hard truths and the sweet truths, and we need to know why things are the way they are, and we need to be realist. You know, this is why Christians have been burned at the stake, because they were realist, because they didn't peddle the word, they didn't say things to tickle people's ears and to just pack churches Now, they didn't say things just to offend people. We don't want to do that. But we need to hear the hard truths. You need to hear this morning, and I need to hear this morning, that if I don't come to the light, it's because I love my darkness. And if I love my darkness, Jesus says, ultimately, the darkness is going to overtake you. We need to receive that word. We need to come to terms with the fact that many around us are going to harden their hearts in unbelief. Um, Now, I want to say this this morning because that's hard. And the next thing I'm going to say in the second point is even harder. So buckle up again. And if you have a problem with it, your problem's with Jesus, not with me. So I'll just preface that. But let me say this. There is also a sweetness here. Don't miss that. There is a sweetness here. The Lord Jesus has you sitting here this morning. 
and me here this morning to hear these words. You know why? Because he wants to impart on you the light of life. This is a free offer of the gospel. Jesus is not just being strict and severe and harsh. He wants you to feel your need for the light. He wants me to feel my need for the light. He wants to call us out of darkness. Now, maybe he's already done that for you, and you're, you're a believer, and you're backslidden. I have known spiritual decay in my experience, and I don't need to know anything about you to know if you're a true believer. You probably have two points. It happens. The Puritans dealt with it in the most careful ways. Spiritual decline is real. Backsliding is real. Decay is real. If, if you find yourself in a place this morning where you have come to the light, you have believed in the light, and for whatever reason, you have, you have moved from the light back toward darkness. Let me give you a good word this morning. Charles Spurgeon said this about this passage. He said he's offering the light for this reason. He said, Jesus will not quench a smoking flax. Last night I lit a fire, and it was super windy out, and I cheat because I'm not a real man, so I use this like fake like fire stick that you can light, and, and it wouldn't light, and it kept sort of sparking. Everybody that's laughing is like, yeah, he's not that tough. And, uh, and anyway, well, I'm not going to go out there with a stick and, like, you know, whittle the flame. But um, every time I lit it, it was, it was almost lighting, and I was, I was blowing on it. And then it would go out, and I'd get another one. Finally, I got, like, five of them lit, and we had a fire. But um, the reason I tell you that is that our faith and our Christian experience is often like that. And Jesus is the one that said he did not come to quench a smoking flax, a wick where there was just a little bit left. He did not come to break a bruised reed. By the way, if you want to read one of the best works in church history to comfort your soul, Richard Sibbs, the sweet dropper of heaven, wrote a little treatise that Banner of Truth has published called The Bruised Reed. It's one of the most beautiful little books. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Jesus will not quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. Therefore, come to him with your doubts and your anxieties. See, it's not just progressives that say, you know, come to Jesus, he, doubters come. Charles Spurgeon says that. <laughs> the Puritans say that. Come to Jesus. Come to him with your doubts and your anxieties. Believe that his tender heart loves you and desires your good. Listen to this. That he will sit at your feet that he may induce you to sit at his feet. He will come down to your level that he may lift you up to his level. Isn't that awesome? What Jesus is doing in this last sermon, he's coming down to your level, and he's saying, don't walk in the darkness. I am the light. Come to the light. I'll freely give you light. I'll lead you out of the darkness. You'll have the light of life. And it's all by grace. And you can't merit it, and you can't work for it. You can't read your Bible enough for it. But you've got to come to Jesus in response to the gospel, in repentance and faith, and we got to keep going to him in repentance and faith. I was reading a number of older ministers on this passage, and a number of them actually said this, and I thought it was so helpful, and Ryle was one of them. He said, you know, every day of your life, we need to go to Jesus and say, help my unbelief. You know, sometimes I ask myself, am I praying that prayer too often? You cannot pray that prayer too often. Because you may have, as Ryle says, 
more money than you know what to do with, and you may have more enjoyment in life than you can handle, but you will never have more faith than you need. You will never have too much faith. The smallest faith unites us to the same strong Christ and saves us because of the same strong Christ, but we will never have too much faith. And so we go to him and we say, Lord, I believe you're the light. I want to walk in the light. Help my unbelief. Now, if you've never done that, I want to urge you today, Jesus said, a little while longer and you're not going to have the light. Walk while you have the light. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, as the Puritans used to say, to close with Christ. Have you closed with Christ? You know, there's only so many offertures of his grace. He's only going to offer his grace for so long. And yet he will not quench a smoking flax. He will not break a bruised reed. We can come to him with our doubts and anxieties and sin. Well, I want us to secondly consider Christ's sovereignty over the hearts of men. And here John is giving us a sort of a... uh, explanational commentary on why the people are not believing and and why they haven't believed. And notice this, in verse 39, John says, therefore, they could not believe. He didn't say they would not believe. He said it was not able or possible that they would believe. That's a hard word. Now, the Apostle John says that And then he goes back to Isaiah chapter 6. And remember there, that's the call of Isaiah. Remember, the Lord says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to send you. And here's the message. You're going to go to a hardened, rebellious, unrepentant people. And I want you to say to them, notice this, verse 40. He, the Lord, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now, that's in Isaiah 6. That's the message that Jehovah, Yahweh, gives to Isaiah to say to the people, keep on seeing and do not see, keep on hearing, do not hear, make the hearts of this people dull, lest they see, lest they hear, lest they understand and be turned. And then, notice this, notice verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Here in John 12, Isaiah, according to the Apostle John, saw Jesus on the throne, and the one who gave him the message that I am going to blind their eyes and harden their hearts was the same Christ in front of them offering them salvation. Now, how do I reconcile that? Because Christians for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, have tried to reconcile this truth. Here, Christ is offering the gospel. People are rejecting the gospel. And John is saying behind that is because he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they could not see and could not understand. Um, Let me read Spurgeon to you again. Spurgeon says that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They they are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It's the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. But listen to this. Spurgeon says in eternity, they are two lines like railroad tracks. They are two lines that are so parallel 
that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, where all truth does spring. So what he's saying is, the free offer of the gospel, whosoever will come, I want you to have the light of life. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. We may not be able to reconcile those right now, but one day they are going to make sense. Now, one thing we can do is to understand that in the case of the Jews who were rejecting Jesus, who had saw his miracles, heard his sermons, heard him talk about the gospel, everything that they had witnessed, they had hardened their hearts against him. So this hardening that Isaiah speaks of is a punishment for them hardening their hearts. Um, Gerhardus Voss, old theologian from Princeton Seminary, said there is a well-known scriptural law of sin being punished by irretrievable abandonment to sin, a law that's in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, that should be frightening to us. Um, it should be frightening to me anytime I'm dabbling with sin. It should be frightening to you. If, if we're, we're, we're walking in darkness, if we're hardening our hearts, if we're not responding to Christ uh, in repentance and faith, and yet, let me say this this morning, if, if there is even an inkling in your soul ever when you read the warnings of Scripture, or you read about Christ's sovereignty over the hearts of men, like we do here, if you are saying inside, oh God, I don't want that to be true of me, that is the right response. Um, if, if, if it doesn't do anything to you, that is the wrong response. If you brush it off, we deny it, if we reject it, we say, I'm not even going to entertain how that could ever pertain to me. Now, doesn't mean you shouldn't have assurance of salvation. We spoke this morning with the kids in Sunday school about assurance, that precious doctrine, and we love those passages of scripture because they're so true and they quiet our guilty consciences. There is now therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. God said, I will, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I have blotted out your sins like a thick cloud. I have cast them behind my back. I have put them in the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And our souls grab onto those as we're meant to. And the promises become essential to assurance. But then as the Westminster Confession says, we are also looking for inward evidences of grace. And so I have to ask myself, is my life, not perfectly, not, not sinlessly, but is my life in some way reflecting that I've been transformed by the grace of God, that I've been made the recipient of the light of Christ? Or do I look like I've always looked, and do I look just like everybody else. Harry Reader always says, and I love this phrase, he says, the question's not, are you sinless, but do you sin less? It's very Baptist-y, I like that. <laughs> it's not, are you sinless? You are not going to be far from it. Heidelberg Catechism says even the godliest make the smallest advances in this life in what is owed to God's obedience. If you ever think that you're almost there, that's a very bad place to be. And yet, the question is, are there any evidences of grace? And if they are, then 
That's a mark. Um, and, then, and then the confession says we have the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The promises, the inward graces, the spirit of God. So that, let me just bring this home. When we hear the hard and severe things of scripture, we don't let them drive us to a lack of assurance and unbelief. They should drive us into the arms of Christ further to him, closer to him, and further from our sin. Somebody asked Spurgeon once, how do you reconcile the promises and the warnings or the promises and the hard truths about God's sovereignty over hardening people's hearts? And Spurgeon said, you don't have to reconcile friends. They work together. The one is meant to drive you to the other, not away from. I told you briefly, and I'll share this with you, I was 23 years old. I was lost. I was in the far country. I was sitting outside of a country club I was cooking at at the time, and I remember thinking, when is God going to save me or kill me? Now, that was, that, that's what we call hyper-Calvinism. It's bad. <laughs> I had a responsibility to go to Christ. But as I meditated on the things that you're hearing this morning, and I knew where I was, um, the Holy Spirit started working in me a fear. Maybe, maybe God created me to be a vessel of wrath. Maybe he's hardened my heart. And, and instead of that driving me from him, it drove me straight to the foot of the cross. I know that may not make sense to you. It didn't make sense to me at the time, but it got me to Christ. It drove me to the foot of the cross. It made me cry out for the blood of Jesus. So when we look at our hearts, when we hear the things that we've heard here this morning, I'm going to stop for the sake of time. We need to ask ourselves a question. When I hear the overtures of grace from the lips of Jesus, and I know and believe that he is merciful and gracious, that he went to the cross to atone for all the sins of his people, and I feel my sinfulness, and I hear him saying, while you have the light, come to the light, believe in the light, walk in the light, am I drawn to him, or am I drawn from him? There's only going to be two responses to this. We're either going to be drawn to him, or we're going to be driven from him. And when we realize that those who harden their hearts are going to have their hearts further hardened and are in danger of that, that ought to make us fear the evil heart of unbelief because we would love sin more than Christ. Let me, let me just say this this morning. I am on the exact same playing field as you. I'm no different than you. We are all fallen in Adam. We all need the same Savior, the same remedy, the same blood of Christ. We all need the same grace to lead us out of darkness and always be leading us into the light as we have the light. I want to leave you with this encouragement from Spurgeon as we close. Jesus will not quench a smoking flax, nor bruise, nor break a bruised reed. Therefore, come to him with your doubts and your anxieties. Believe that his tender heart loves you and so desires your good. He will sit at your feet that he may induce you to sit at his feet. He will come down to your level 
that he may lift you up to his level. That's, that's the purpose of Jesus' last sermon to the unbelieving Jews. And I hope that the Lord uses it to the salvation of our souls. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths, and yet we acknowledge these are truths that we need to hear. We thank you for them. We thank you that you have breathed out every word in scripture. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Christ who is sitting on the throne of God, the one who appeared to Isaiah and gave him that very difficult message to proclaim, and yet we thank you that you are the Christ who came in the flesh to suffer and die and atone for our sins that you are the gentle and the lowly Christ who will not quench a smoking flax nor bruise a, break a bruised reed. We pray that you would deal gently and kindly with those among us who have come to the light and yet may have turned from the light. Would you draw us all back to the light this morning? Would you make us a people who take seriously each and every overture of your grace? We pray these things in your name. Amen.